This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, of course, for our hot question of the day today, we have to ask you about the federal election. So for the next five and a half weeks, we are all going to be bombarded with information, with, um, you know, slogans, with signs, with commercials, you name it, because the parties want essentially to grab your vote. But here's the question. Is your vote actually up for grabs? Or have you already decided? That's what we're asking today for our hot question of the day. Have you decided who you will vote for in the federal election coming up on October the 21st? Do you say, yes, I have, my die is cast? Or are you undecided? Pretty straightforward, right? So go to at CKNW on Twitter to let us know. You can go to SimiSarah980. You can also email me. Let me know how you're thinking at this start of the campaign. That is Simi at CKNW.com. Now, we put this up about 20 minutes ago. We've already gathered like dozens of votes here. 75% of the people who've already voted say they, sorry, already voted, already voted in our poll, not voted in general. 75% of the people who have taken part, I should say, in our poll say they've already decided how they're going to vote. They said, yes, my die is cast. It's only 25% of the people right now who say that they are undecided. So that, I find, is a very interesting number because that means, like, the whole point of a campaign is to try to convince you, right? We know there are also a lot of people out there who don't really start to think about this kind of stuff until the campaigns get underway. But let's face it, 2019 has been a unique year in that regard because of how much federal politics has been staying in the headlines and in the spotlight all year long. It feels like ever since way back in early February when that Globe and Mail bombshell dropped about SNC-Lavalin that we have talked about the federal election which means a lot of people may have already decided. Sounds like it. Have you, or are you going to wait and see how this campaign goes? Let us know. Cast your vote in our poll about your vote. Uh, you can go to SimiSarah980 or at CKNW. Call our buzz line as well. Let us know how you're feeling about this or drop me an email, simi at cknw.com. Hey, have you heard? The election campaign's underway. Yes, I know you've heard because it's been very big news today. And of course, that means the election is coming up now on October the 21st. That is going to be voting day. We'll keep you informed of everything that you need to know between now and then, including, as I'm sure many of you will be interested in, I know I will be, advanced voting. That's going to be a big, I think, deal for a lot of us as well. So we've got 40 days now where we're going to be sometimes talking election, sometimes talking about what you are also interested in here too, and whether or not you've made up your mind. That's coming up in just a moment. But let's sum up for you how things went this morning with the big kind of kickoff. The Liberal leader, Justin Trudeau, asked the Governor General Julie Payette to dissolve Parliament this morning. Uh, Then he spoke outside of Rideau Hall where that had just happened. He was asked about this new Globe and Mail story uh, that says the Liberals are using cabinet confidentiality to block people from potentially speaking to the RCMP when it comes to the SNC-Lavalin story. We uh, gave out uh, the largest and most expansive waiver of cabinet confidence in Canada's history. So are you going to ask the Privy Council clerk to waive cabinet confidentiality? We respect the decisions made by our professional public servants. We respect the decision made by the clerk. Yeah, what does that mean? right? That doesn't actually answer the question. So you can bet there'll be more questions like that asked on the campaign trail. One of the other things that he was asked about was whether he continues to believe that conservatives are not the enemy. As I've said many, many times, uh, I do not engage in personal attacks, but I will be very, very sharp on distinctions around policy, on uh, how one engages with Canadians and the vision one puts forward. Uh, That is something that Canadians uh, deserve in an election, to see clear contrasts between a vision uh, that is open, inclusive, and respectful of everyone's rights, 
uh, and a perspective that says they're for the people, but then delivers cuts to services and cuts to taxes for the wealthy. Ah, yes, you really can tell the campaign has kicked off, can't you? That was the Liberal leader, Justin Trudeau, this morning. So now let's hear about the other party leaders. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer spoke with the media this morning as well. Uh, He, of course, had some accusations for the Liberal leader, says that he has lost the moral authority to govern because of the SNC-Lavalin scandal. I don't believe him at all. I stopped believing him when it was proven that he lied to Canadians. When the ethics commissioner showed that he lied to Canadians about his role in this affair. Uh, we know that the power to waive cabinet confidential, uh, confidentiality and the power to waive privilege in this case rests with the Prime Minister. That is clear. It's within his power to do so. He should do it immediately. He should do it today. Uh, the ethics commissioner's report over the summer didn't really move the dial with voters. So do you think this latest development with SNC will? Well, again, this whole scandal isn't about moving poll numbers. This is about showing to Canadians that Justin Trudeau has lost the moral authority to govern. And clearly the RCMP are taking this seriously enough to start investigating individuals in the Prime Minister's office. And that's why it's so important that Justin Trudeau take some personal responsibility and waive that privilege. It's within his power to do so. But I'm going to make a prediction. He's going to lie about it today. He's going to continue lying about it, just like he did at the very beginning, when he looked Canadians in the eye and said that he had nothing to do with this, that the allegations were false. He then said that Jody Wilson-Raybould never came to him with her concerns. We now know that is a lie as well. He said that he was doing this because of jobs or headquarters of SNC-Lavalin. We now know that wasn't true either. If he had nothing to hide, he would waive the privilege and he would let the RCMP do their work. That is Conservative leader Andrew Scheer at the kickoff to the Conservative campaign today. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh also had things to say about Liberal leader Justin Trudeau, says that he said the right things, but didn't do them. Behind closed doors, Justin Trudeau does whatever the wealthy and powerful corporations want him to do. It's clear Justin Trudeau isn't who he pretended to be. And Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives are not the answer. They're going to cut taxes for the wealthy, but they're going to cut services that you and your families count on. You'll pay the price with an even worse, with even more expensive health care, an even more expensive medication, and an even worsening climate crisis. That is uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh at the kickoff to the NDP campaign today. He was also asked about the party's expensive promises and whether or not they are feasible. In terms of feasibility, it's really a matter of choices. I mean, if you look at the past year, Mr. Trudeau didn't do a feasibility study before he cut the corporate tax rate by uh, $14 billion to allow the wealthiest corporations to buy corporate jets and limousines. He didn't study that. He made a choice. He didn't really ask people or consult whether Canada could afford to buy a pipeline, and he spent $4.5 billion on a pipeline. That's almost $20 billion in money that was spent to help out the wealthiest, not to help out Canadians. We would make different choices. With the resources we have, we take it very seriously. We take our budget very seriously, but we would invest in things like universal pharmacare for all, building the housing that people need, making sure people are put at the center of what we do. We also have put forth some of our measures. So we're working with the Parliamentary Budget Office to put out the costing. And one of the things that we've announced recently is to pay for some of our promises, we're ready to increase revenue. And to do that, we're asking the people at the very top to pay a little more. And so we put forward a super wealth tax, which is a tax on those who've got fortunes of over 20 million. The PBO has announced that that would raise in the first year close to 6 billion, and eventually it could build up to about $10 billion. That's a commitment to raise funds to to enact our promises. That is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh at the kickoff to that party's campaign uh, today. And then, of course, there's Green Party leader Elizabeth May, who also kicked off uh, the Green Party campaign. And, of course, uh, Green Party has a lot of high hopes uh, heading into this campaign, hoping to make a real breakthrough. And leader Elizabeth May said, this is the most important federal election in Canadian history. This election is about telling the truth to Canadians about how serious the climate emergency really is. And we do that in order not to create fear. We do that in order to give everyone hope. 
We have a plan. We know this is a climate emergency, and we don't just use the words without understanding their meaning. How could we in Parliament have passed a motion June 17th that we're in a climate emergency, and the next day our government committed to spend $13 billion on the Trans Mountain Pipeline to drive up greenhouse gases? We will continue to stand firm. We will hold the line. No one can dissuade us from seeing clearly that we need to move away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And that's mission possible. That is uh, Elizabeth May, the Green Party leader, kicking off that party's campaign to the federal election. She detailed a little bit more about her party's alternative to fossil fuels. We can transform our economy. We can move to an economy with 100% renewable energy feeding an electricity grid. Our national infrastructure energy needs are not pipelines. It's a Canadian grid strategy to ensure creating way more jobs than any other party has talked about. We'll have millions of jobs created in retrofitting all our buildings for energy efficiency, in building that east, west and north electricity grid, in turning over and shutting down fossil fuels and turning on the sun the wind, the tides, the streams. We can be 100% renewable energy by 2030. It's a job we have to do. There you go. You've heard from all four party leaders there at the kickoff to their campaigns. We kind of summed up the most important bits of what they had to say. Yes, we are checking in on how that federal election campaign kickoff is going. By the way, our hot question of the day today wants to know if uh, you've already decided. And, you know, a lot of people have. A lot of people, they were already kind of solidified in their vote even leading into this. So we want to know, has the die been cast for you or are you still undecided? You can check that out at uh, Semisera980 or at CKNW. Now, the Green Party has high hopes for this uh, campaign. They really hope to make a breakthrough, despite the fact that leading into the campaign, they have had quite a few uh, faux pas. Let's talk about that a little bit more now with the help of Richard Zussman, our global news reporter who was on the Green Party campaign trail. Hi, Richard. Hi, Simi. Okay, how did it go this morning? Big crowd? Interesting crowd. I think a crowd you should expect at uh, 7 o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday. A lot of uh, elderly folks that I'm guessing are retired and uh, probably stopped in for their breakfast before heading to a 7 o'clock event. Early risers, I would call them. Uh, but there was a real authenticity uh, from Elizabeth May. I mm-hmm. think this campaign, as you mentioned, she will never get more attention. She will never have higher expectations. She will never have more scrutiny than she will now. You know, this This party has finally entered the mainstream, Mm -hmm. and we will see if they can parlay that into seats. But she was genuine. She was open. You know, you and I have covered a lot of political events. I've never seen a leader come out an hour before they're supposed to come out and just chit-chat with the crowd and let them know what's going on and explain that Justin Trudeau's in with the uh, governor general right now, and I'm going to go after the block, and you have to wait. And and then she just sort of chatted, and off she went, and it was... uh, very genuine, a little bit weird, uh, and sort of this uh, realization that this is a party that's used to grassroots interacting mm-hmm. with every single voter in person. And if you're right. going to run a national campaign, uh, you can't do that. Yeah, and let's talk about that, because getting on to the uh, national stage here, it's been a bit bumpy for the Green yeah. Party. The abortion issue, the national unity issue, these have been some blunders. Yeah, there have been some major blunders, and these are from candidates across the country. So there have been a few of them. So let's start at the latest and work our way back. Uh, Pierre Nantel is a candidate for the Greens. He's a, he was an MP, uh, before the writs, uh, were drawn up today. Uh, he was an NDP MP switched over to the Greens. He mm-hmm. said in an interview this week that Canada cannot separate, or Quebec cannot separate quickly enough from Canada. And I asked Elizabeth May about that today. She She said she is a strong federalist. She mentioned her Order of Canada. She mentioned that all Green Party candidates will be federalist and believe in Canada and taking the oath to Canadians. Yeah, but but said that she listened to the interview a bunch of times and didn't really hear the language that he was actually a separatist. Well, you know, it was pretty clear from that quote that he said. So I think Elizabeth May is trying to play both sides here. 
they are going to have a problem with that issue and that candidate. The other one is around a woman's right to choose around abortions. And Elizabeth May again has said that she is strongly opposed to reopening any debate around uh, legalized abortions in Canada. But she has allowed her candidates uh, to uh, have the positions that they feel as part of an open party. I think Canadians will find that confusing. Uh, the other issue is around the controversial legislation in Quebec around banning uh, mm -hmm. religious wear at uh, provincial institutions, including schools. Again, very controversial in many places of the country. And she said, well, Quebec candidates will be able to have uh, their own views on this issue. I think... If you're going to run in every province, you can't uh, there do that. needs to be clarity yeah. because these are national issues uh, where there is a very firm stance from progressives. Uh, and the challenge, too, with Greens is that I think a lot of people think they're on the left wing of the political spectrum. That's not necessarily true. Yeah. There are lots of right wingers who have found a home in the Green Party around environmental ideas. And I think that's one of the struggles that as May speaks to progressives, she'll have a hard time explaining some of the right wingers that uh, have found a home and are running uh, for the Greens. Yeah, I had a lot of trouble with the statement that came from the Green spokesperson last night, the statement that they gave to the Star newspaper, saying that any MP representing the party would be allowed to espouse separatist views because the unity of Canada, quote, is not one of the party's core values. Yeah, and that's concerning. And I think the language has changed. You know, when I asked the question today, Elizabeth May was much stronger on it. But I think that can is an issue of concern. And as candidates go to the door in every riding, and the Greens really have their eyes here on Vancouver Island. There are mm -hmm. seven ridings uh, on the island. Five are held by the NDP, two by the Greens. Uh, the Greens believe they can win six out of the seven. Maybe all really? seven if things break their way. That would be a big growth and a big stretch, Simi. And I think there's some skeptics out there. But if you look at the poll numbers, they are confident. Uh, they also believe that there is potentially some wiggle room uh, in Metro Vancouver, although that's going to be much more challenging. And although they're saying they're running a coast-to-coast -coast campaign, they're really running a campaign on the coasts. Because the other place they're looking is Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia all provinces that have elected green provincial representatives. The last one quickly, Simi, just mm -hmm. from a more national perspective, uh, they won in Ontario one seat in the provincial election last year. Mike Schreiner's the green leader there. The ridings in Ontario are the same provincially as federally. So there's some optimism from the Greens. They could potentially win Guelph federally. They're also looking at a riding in Kitchener. But most of the time and attention uh, for Elizabeth May and the Greens will be spent right here on Vancouver Island and, and likely drift over to the mainland as well. Yeah, so is that in terms of campaigning as well? Will she be focusing on those two areas or will she be hitting all the... Uh provinces. I think a big part of it is that uh, she will be spending time in provinces, but will sort of fly over the prairies, uh, doesn't see much hope in terms of electoral success there, and will be spending the bulk of the time in places where she believes she can win. But I think the plan is to run again a national tour where they stop in as many places as possible in order to get the media attention that goes with it and try to raise the profile of the party. And, and prepare for the breakthrough that so many people have talked about for so long the Greens have never yeah. seen nationally. And do you feel that that makes the pressure like somewhat on them as well because they yeah, be they believe sure. they're going to have a breakthrough? And it's just they just are, are run differently, Sammy, than all the other parties. You know, yeah. when you look at the federal conservatives and liberals and NDP, these parties have machines and staff and operations and ways they've always done things. And I think the public rightfully is critical of the way politicians have always done things. Elizabeth May does things differently, and that has its pluses around right. you know, being accessible and being genuine. It also has its minuses. Like this morning's event seemed disorganized at times, seemed a little bit bizarro at times, but it is her. It is Elizabeth, genuine Elizabeth May. And I think they've proven with Elizabeth May and Paul Manley that they can do things in Parliament bring forward ideas and issues and debate, but whether they can be a substantive party mm -hmm. that's driving policy in Canada, well, that's one of those big questions. And the environment, obviously, is where they're trying to focus in terms of driving that policy agenda. Well, we'll be checking in with you during the campaign then, Richard. Thank you. I can't wait, Simi. I can't wait either. <laughs> that's Richard Desmond, our global news reporter, who is going to be on the Green Party campaign trail, uh, joining us to talk about their launch. And yeah, there's a lot of pressure on the Green Party this time around because they believe they're going to have the big breakthrough. Is that possible? 
we will not be issuing any business license to ride-sharing companies in Surrey. That is Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. I tell you, he knows which crowd he is speaking to. He certainly knows how to play to them because those uh, people that he was speaking to, the applause that you heard there, were taxi drivers, a lot of them based in Surrey. And he, he went to this meeting that BC taxi drivers were gathered at yesterday afternoon and spoke to them, and that's what he said to them, that he would try to make sure, or do his best, or do everything he could to make sure that there would be no ride-hailing companies operating in Surrey. The question, though, is can he actually do anything? Well, doesn't sound like it, but he is promising to do what he can. According to him, he said, every ride-sharing company needs to have a business license to operate in the city of Surrey. And he said, I am telling you today, we will not be issuing any business licenses to those companies in Surrey. Now, that might be good politics, right? He had a very welcoming crowd there when he made those comments. But the thing is, BC's rules for ride-hailing companies doesn't really – they don't give any authority to municipalities to deal with this. And also, my point to Surrey residents is, how do you feel about your mayor saying this? I feel like Surrey residents probably need ride-hailing more so than Vancouver residents do. I mean, in the end, you can get a taxi in Vancouver. Taxi drivers are always wanting to stay within Vancouver, shorter rides, more trips, more money. They don't want to take those long trips and coming back and forth. So Surrey residents, how do you feel about this? We're going to give you a chance to weigh in. But just to let you know, we also wanted to talk more about this with Doug McCallum to say, like, what exactly do you think Surrey can do? He and his office have not returned our phone call on that. Then we also phoned the lawyer for the taxi industry. Uh, they're, you know, they're talking about taking this up in a legal challenge. Uh, we saw that they have a lawyer representing them. He's been on TV talking about this. We gave him a call. Yeah, he didn't want to talk to us either. He actually hung up on our producer. So they're not willing to publicly talk about why they don't want you as a member of the public to not have a choice when it comes to getting around and finding a ride, but they certainly are willing to suck up to the politicians out there. So in Surrey, can they actually do anything? Well, let's talk to a Surrey City Councillor about that now. Linda Annis joins us. Thank you very much for being here. My pleasure, Simi. Now, is there anything the city of Surrey could actually do to prevent these companies from operating there? Well, it's my understanding that it's a provincial government uh, mandate, and it's mandated that we have um, ride-sharing throughout the Lower Mainland, which also includes Surrey. I have reached out to our legal um, department at City Hall to get clarification. I'm still waiting for that, but to the best of my knowledge, it is a provincial matter, and I'm looking to the province to deal with it swiftly and efficiently. Councillor Annis, what did you think then when you heard about the mayor's comments yesterday? I was absolutely shocked. We've been waiting for this for a long, long while. Uh, We don't have a good transit system throughout Surrey. We're short of buses. We're short of cabs. We have a very fast-growing community. Ride hailing would just help alleviate this. And I think in the end of the day, it's what the people want. And we should look to the market and the market will deal with it. We shouldn't be talking to special interest groups. It should be what the residents want. That's what we were elected for. So have you been hearing from residents on this? Absolutely. I've been hearing a lot from them. Everyone was very excited when they heard that uh, ride hailing was coming to the Lower Mainland. Just ask the people that you know have waited for a cab and haven't been able to get it because of jurisdictional issues or because of lack of cabs. This will just alleviate that problem uh, to a certain extent. And uh, I was very disappointed to hear the mayor's comment yesterday. Do you expect this to come up at council? Absolutely. Um, You know, I think it's um, something that we need to deal with quickly. We obviously need to um, uh, work as well with our provincial government, but we just need to get on with it and get it to uh, get it implemented so that uh, we do have ride hailing throughout the lower mainland. I guess I'm curious about the business license comment that Mayor McCallum made yesterday. Like, just because you don't like a business... Can, a, can you just say, no, we're not going to give you a license, but if they tick all the boxes, aren't you obligated then to issue that license? Well, that would seem very uh, logical to me, Simi. Um, you know, they're not doing anything um, that is improper. They're following all the guidelines that have been set by the province. I don't know how we can refuse to give them a business license. So then what would you say to Surrey residents who are concerned about these comments? 
Well, we definitely need ride hailing in Surrey. We need ride hailing throughout the Lower Mainland. We've been waiting for a long, long while for this. We need to get on with it, and we need to make it happen sooner as opposed to later. All right, Councillor Annis, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. That is Linda Annis, the Surrey City Councillor, responding. And she's the, the one councillor who for a long time was the only opposition councillor on Surrey Council. She's now been joined by other independent councillors. Uh, talking about the mayor's comments, vow, he vowed yesterday to keep ride-hailing companies out of Surrey. You know, for so many people, that high school romance, or even that junior high school, maybe even that elementary school romance, brings back memories for you. Not all of them good, some of them bad. As we know, being a teenager isn't always easy. So is it even a good idea for teens to date in high school? Well, that is the subject of a very interesting new study out from the University of Georgia. To talk more about it, we're joined now by our producer, Claire Allen, who was also fascinated by this story. Yeah, I found it to be very interesting because, to me, oftentimes we hear that uh, teen dating is really important for in- for developing interpersonal and intrapersonal uh, skills. But then what about teens who have no interest in dating or just don't end up dating throughout their high school or junior year um, years? What, what is that about, good what, or bad? Like yeah. what happens? If we hear that dating is important for development or people say these are benchmarks that kids should meet, does that mean that people that do not date are social misfits? <laughs> I'm not, I hadn't given it a lot of thought before as someone, I had a high school boyfriend and I hadn't really thought about people that didn't date. But as you said, this study from the University of Georgia had some very interesting findings. So the uh, researcher, one of the researchers, her name is Brooke Douglas, and she is the co-author of the study and a doctoral student in the health uh, department of health promotion at the University of Georgia. And I asked her why she wanted to look more closely at the issue of teen dating. My co-author and I were really interested in learning more about um, adolescents who were not dating throughout their adolescent years. We know that romantic relationships during adolescence are very common. In fact, I think the majority of adolescents have been involved in some type of romantic relationship by 15 to 17 years of age. And so we have learned that researchers in this field suggest that romantic or dating a romantic partner is really considered normal behavior during teenage years. It's considered to be um, on time or typical for adolescents. So we wondered, okay, well, what does this suggest about adolescents who are not pursuing romantic relationships or are not dating throughout their adolescent years? Because we also learned that romantic relationships are very important for individual development and well-being. And so does that mean that, you know, teens who are not dating during this time are somehow maladjusted or social misfits because they don't typically follow what is considered the norm? So that's kind of how we got interested in examining um, students who are actually not dating throughout their adolescent years. All right, that is Brooke Douglas, the co-author of this study. So she clearly has a deep interest in this topic. Yeah, definitely. And so I was curious about, you know, how did they conduct this study? Was it just like a a little worksheet that they passed around or what? But it actually, Simi, was a years-long piece of research. So pretty interesting. So she explains it a little bit more. My co-author, Dr. Pamela Pinas, she actually published a study in 2013, which followed a group of adolescents from Georgia from 6th grade to 12th grade. And each spring semester, um, students indicated whether they had dated. They reported on a number of social and emotional factors, including, you know, what their relationships were like with their friends at home and at school, as well as symptoms of depression. And then we also had um, teachers completing questionnaires rating each student's behavior in areas such as like their social skills, uh, leadership skills, and levels of depression. So we used that data from that study to examine whether 10th grade students who had reported no or very infrequent dating during that seven-year period, how they compared on an emotional and social level with their skills um, to those who were actually dating frequently during that time period. Okay, I wonder what they classify as like frequently. Is that somebody who always has a boyfriend or a mm-hmm. girlfriend? Uh, you know, she didn't really say that, but it's just she mentioned that their relationships would vary in length. So I think it was just any experience with being in a relationship in your high school years. Um, so as you heard there, they looked at a big, uh, large uh, chunk of people. Yeah. And uh, throughout a certain 
almost like from sixth grade to twelfth grade. It's a long time. That's a very for those are formative, formative years, years in a teenager's life. Yes, and years where dating would likely happen at some point or come up at some point. And yeah. so, as we heard in the introduction, they were specifically looking at people, teenagers who did not date. And the results were actually quite positive for teens that do not engage in dating. We actually found that um, non-dating students, they're actually doing pretty well. Um, more specifically, we found that adolescents who were not in romantic relationships, they had good social skills, low depression, and they were kind of doing better than some of their peers that were dating. And so what does this tell us? This tells us that, you know, this notion that non-daters are maladjusted it's not really true, <laughs> at least within this age group. We see that they're actually doing just fine and are healthy. That's so interesting. So then that's kind of a social myth, right? That, yeah. oh, you need to have some kind of high school romance experience because it's good for you socially and for your development. Definitely. I mean, I've heard from people in my family that have younger kids that buy into that idea that, oh, they should have a boyfriend or a girlfriend in high school and parents that are a little worried that their son or daughter does not. I've heard people in my own family have said like, oh, we're a little concerned or like we're hoping that he or she finds somebody or, you know, just in high school. Yeah. Just like, to, I don't think that's just a big have, deal. I think because they think that experience is so valuable. But as we learned in the study that actually it it's seems a, like it might be more valuable for your own mental health and social well-being to mm-hmm. not date, which I thought was really interesting. And I did ask uh, Brooke Douglas about the correlation, if they were able to see why there was such a high correlation uh, of depression with teens who actually do date. Um, They didn't actually look specifically at why, but I think it's pretty safe to assume that the heartbreak that goes along with teen dating and usually teens' first experience of heartbreak obviously contributes to the reports of a higher rate of depression. But also... Just the stress that comes along with being in a relationship. Well, it's Maybe a roller these, coaster ride. Yeah, and also as a teen, you are your brain's still developing. You've got hormones going on, so it's just maybe it's a it's, it's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> I don't know. Are Looking you back at my own from history, experience, Claire, I thought it was really interesting because I think as someone who you know looked back on their teenage years and looked at the study, I definitely agree that I I don't know if dating in my high school years was actually you know something I should have participated in. Well, believe it or not, our Gord McDonald had a very good point about this when we I'm talked sure about he it earlier. He did. <laughs> he said, what's tough for parents on this is if you've got a child who really does believe that it's part of growing up mm-hmm. and they want to date somebody, they'll just not tell their parents. They'll, yeah. they'll find a way to do it anyway. Yes, I don't think... I mean, this isn't... What Even I, if a parent says... I don't want you dating anybody. It's not good for you. They'll still find a way to do it if they want to. Yeah, and we've heard all those like TV dads being like, my daughter can't date, blah, blah, blah. And you always hear about the daughter dating. It's always some TV episode. Exactly. And I don't think Brooke Douglas and her co-author were actually looking at for this to be sort of like a a solid answer for parents. Like, this is an example of why your kid shouldn't date. Don't let them date. But I think this was like, (laughs) if your child is not interested in dating, this isn't cause for alarm. This doesn't mean that your child is, you know, developmentally not at par with other kids that have had relationships or risks, you know, not being socially with it or whatever. It's really just saying that, you know, it's not the end of the world world if your child doesn't date. There's some benefit there. There are some, the report shows that there are some benefits for kids that do not date. Yeah, so you could say, listen, don't worry about it. Like, yeah, I you've guess got it's a, a lifetime really... to date and do all that kind of yes, stuff. Yes, you have a lifetime of heartbreak ahead of you, oh, kids. <laughs> no, I really want to hear about your high school experiences. No, but I, th- I think it's a really interesting study and um, also one that we don't, we don't, we're only starting to hear a lot about how um, relationships in those formative years impact your the rest of your life, right? Like relationships oh, you have. It can scar people for life, though, if their high school relationship doesn't go well. Exactly. Or, you know, the type of person that they get into a relationship with can impact what future relationships decisions they make, whether they are in an abusive relationship or whatever. We're only starting to really look at how those patterns continue on in life. So I just thought this was a really interesting study because it looks at no dating at all. <laughs> I wonder, like, I'm sure everybody has a story, right, about dating in high school. Some people will, I'm sure, write me and tell me that they're married to their high school sweetheart and everything is great. And that's lovely if it works out. But for most people, it doesn't. No, it does not. (laughs) I also think, like, marrying your high school sweetheart was probably more common in decades past than it is now. Right, because that's something you and I talked about when we first looked at this study is that 
that's some back in the day, that's where you met, met your, spouse. your spouse. Yeah. Sixties and seventies and maybe even into the early eighties. Like exactly. that's where you met your significant And as other. people are getting married later in life, we just don't see high school sweethearts at such a high rate as we used to. Yeah, exactly. All right. Interesting. We'll have to get people. Did you. you want to write in with your story? I can make it anonymous uh, if you want. I've got a novel I could write about. Just oh, that's <laughs> interesting story. Thank it's you. Very interesting. Thank yes. you for Thank that, you, Claire. Claire. That is our producer, Claire Allen, talking about dating in high school and whether or not it is good for a teen's essential mental health. Right, A lot of parents, as Claire mentioned, feel like, oh, it's good for their development. It's good to get them that that experience. Like, yes, they should have a boyfriend or a girlfriend in high school. The study from the University of Georgia says, whoa, pump the brakes on that, parents. That might not be the best thing for your teen. Well, let's dive a little into our election 2019 discussion today. I know today is the big day because it's the kickoff, right? And things will settle down. But today we're talking about the federal parties gearing up for the next five and a half weeks because they desperately want you to put the check next to their party on October the 21st. And that's going to be challenging for some of the parties there. And if you look at our hot question of the day today, it might just be challenging, period, because it sounds like a lot of people have already made up their minds. Are you one of those people? Check out our hot question of the day today. You can find it at simisera980 or at cknw. But what are the key ridings? We keep hearing that BC is going to be so important in this election. Which key ridings in Metro Vancouver in particular are going to be the ones to watch? Well, let's talk to Keith Baldry about that. Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief joins us now. Hi, Keith. Hey, Simi. Are you excited? <laughs> I love election campaigns and I love election nights. I, I can't wait for this thing to really get going. Okay, well, there you go. We will embrace your enthusiasm. Now, which riding in particular are you going to be watching? And I know to start with, I think a lot of eyes right across the country are going to be on Vancouver Granville. Oh, I, I totally agree with you. I think Vancouver Granville is arguably the most interesting riding race in the entire country. Uh, it has the potential to be a genuine four-way race uh, between um, uh, with, with Wilson Rabel being, I think, probably the favorite because I think she has so so much better name recognition than the Liberal, Conservative, NDP, or Greens. I mean, it's conceivably even a, a, a five-way race. So it's it's one that I think the entire country is going to be looking at. And look for the federal Liberals to put a lot of resources into that writing. They would dearly love to take that one back and enact, exact a bit of revenge on someone who they clashed with so openly and, and so publicly. So I, that's at the top of my list. There's 42 writings in BC. Uh, semi, some are lockdowns for, for certain uh, parties. I mean, it'd be shocking were the NDP not to win Vancouver East, for example, or the Liberals not to win Vancouver Centre, or the Conservatives not to win a couple of the Northern writings, where they, they win by large margins. It's writings like Vancouver Granville, Burnaby North Seymour, which the Liberals won by only a relatively small number of votes. And then, Simi, the writings that the Liberals won in 2015 that they took from the Conservatives, there was 11 of them, most of them in Metro Vancouver, which some of them had been Conservative strongholds or even Reform Party strongholds right. for years. And then Trudeau-mania suddenly came along and put writings like uh, Porco Quitlam, North Vancouver, West Vancouver, uh, Delta, uh, Cloverdale-Langley, uh, uh, suddenly into the Liberal camp. And the Conservatives are hoping and betting they can take those writings back. So those are some of the other ones that I think are going to be ones to keep a close eye right. on. Right. I'd also like to talk just briefly here about the very first Vancouver riding where uh, Liberal leader Justin Trudeau will be campaigning tonight. And he's flying out uh, to uh, the West Coast today and will start his campaigning in Vancouver, Kingsway. Uh, that riding mm-hmm. is held by NDP, um, was held by MBT, NDP MP Don Davies, who has you know been elected there a couple of times, but the Liberal candidate there is former broadcaster Tamara Taggart. Yes, and it's very interesting. He chose that riding to uh, to make his kickoff in BC. Yeah, I think that's on that's on the outside edges of for the Liberals' aspirations in terms of winning. But a couple things going on: the NDP is just not tracking well in polls. Uh, there was a poll out last week, and you have to be careful with polls. But there was a poll out by Barb Justison who who got a lot of the municipal races right in the last municipal round, of, uh, last municipal elections, uh, and she had a poll commissioned by Jody Wilson-Raybould. Let's say that right off the top. Yeah. In, 
Vancouver Granville. And it wasn't surprising that, lo and behold, Jody Wilson-Raybould was in first place. That, that's, that's fine. But what I found really fascinating about that poll of a, a sample of more than 360 people, the NDP came in at 6%. That is, that is historically low. So if the Liberals are sensing the NDP is tracking very low, most of those NDP voters, or many of them, would likely go to the Liberals. And they may be picking up the case in Vancouver Kingsway that perhaps the NDP is vulnerable there. And they've got a bit of a star candidate mm-hmm. there in, in Tamara Taggart, former you know, well-known broadcaster. Uh, so uh, and, and a Trudeau, a, a leadership visit to a riding with such high profile that it carries uh, may give her a bit of a, a kickstart here at the beginning of the campaign. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on them winning it, right. but certainly they think it's in play. Let's talk Burnaby and North. It, it, yep. If, if, if the NDP loses Vancouver Kingsway, they're in a lot of trouble. I mean, that should be considered a safe riding for them. Yeah. Uh, that's On the provincial level, that's Adrian Dix's riding. And this is not something the NDP should be even remotely worried about losing. But if they are, that's a measure of just how potentially, how much trouble they could be in. Let's talk Burnaby North Seymour, another interesting riding mm-hmm. to watch because a familiar name trying to make a comeback there as well. Sven Robinson, veteran NDP MP, a man of some controversy over the years. He's trying to stage a comeback in the writing that was a new writing that was created in 2015, won by Terry Beach of the Liberals by a relatively small amount, I think less than 4,000 votes, over the NDP candidate. Uh, again, the Liberals, can they hope to hold that one? Sven Robinson's out there. I know, having grown up in Burnaby and known Sven Robinson his entire political career, I can tell you he works the riding very hard. He, he, he's been out there from day one, I guarantee, door knocking all the time. He's well known to begin with. But again, is the NDP fortunes strong enough to put someone like him over the finish line at a time when the party seems to be struggling with the electorate? And it's, uh, but, you know, he's raising the issue of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. That's, that's where the terminus is. That's ground zero. Right of the pipeline. That's where all the protests are. So uh, we'll see if uh, he can make hay out of that. But that's another one I think that uh, we're going to keep a close watch on. It's, it's the writings won by the Liberals by relatively small margins, I think, are, are the more interesting right. ones to keep an eye on in Metro Vancouver. Another one like that that you just mentioned there, Pitt Meadows Maple Ridge also, will I think, we will be watching. Yeah, so this is another classic riding that, se- that went liberal, seemingly riding on that wave of Trudeau mania. That had been a very strong conservative riding for a number of years. But as we're, we've seen provincially, Pitt Meadows and Maple Ridge, the demographics out there are changing. There's more and more young people moving out to that area because they can't afford to buy homes in closer to Vancouver. So the, the ridings seem to be getting younger, and younger voters traditionally aren't as conservative as, as older voters. Uh, so that is one one reason also why the Liberals were successful there in 2015, and that's why it may be a challenge for the Conservatives to pick that one up. But the Liberals only won by a, a relatively small margin. And again, they correspond to ridings at the provincial level, Simi, that traditionally are very, very close. At uh, the provincial level, there's literally less than, you know, less than 500 votes determine right. the outcome of those those towns. And that's, we're likely going to see the same thing on October 21st. But again, a lot of this depends on the splits that happen. Uh, if the NDP vote does really go down, does that really benefit the the liberals to much greater extent than the other parties or does it benefit a new party such as the green party which also has historic aspirations to do better than they've ever done before right and the conservative candidate in that particular riding pit meadows maple ridge is a familiar name used to be a bc liberal mla mark dalton Mark Dalton, who won uh, election several times as an MLA uh, in that riding in Mission, but again by, by very small margins, he was one. Of, he was right on the razor's edge a couple times, and just to, again an acknowledgement of how how uh, close that outcome can be. So he brings some name recognition uh, to the table, certainly that uh, that uh, will obviously serve him in good stead. But I, I expect no matter who wins that, I think it's going to be a close one. Oh, you just sound so enthusiastic! You're so excited about the next five weeks. <laughs> I can talk about every riding all day long. Oh boy! Okay, well then we're going to have to check back in with you another time, Keith. Listen, thank you so much. Okay, Zimmy. Take care. <laughs> That's Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Talk about somebody who gets excited when an election is on. And yeah, he can talk about every riding anytime, but particularly those BC ridings, uh, the highlights of ones to watch. Of course, we're all watching uh, Vancouver Granville. But as we noted, interesting that the Prime Minister, or the former Prime Minister, now we call him the Liberal leader, Justin Trudeau, is going to be kicking things off uh, in Vancouver Kingsway tonight, not Vancouver Granville. Also, Burnaby North Seymour is interesting. Sven Rob is running there. So many unfolding stories that we are going to be watching on election night. I am absolutely disgusted that you would come back without having this case resolved. 
I expected you not to return until you either had been completely exonerated or to not return. I personally would have a really tough time working with somebody who was accused of sexual assault in an office. That would be difficult. That is just some of the voices heard at a Port Moody council meeting last night responding to the fact that Port Moody Mayor Rob Vagramov decided to come back to work this week, even though he is still facing a charge of sexual assault that is kind of making its way through the system. Now, he's supposed to have a court appearance tomorrow, uh, but not a lot of details on what we expect to have happen there. He himself hasn't provided many, referred people to his lawyer, and his lawyer has not returned phone calls to tell people what the state of the case actually is. So how do other counselors feel about this? Well, we heard the statement uh, yesterday. We spoke to global reporter Sarah McDonald about that on the show. The statement from Councillor Megan Lottie, who was also the acting mayor for a couple of months, and she was not happy uh, about the state of events and said that even though she said she would initially, she had decided she could not represent the mayor on the police board. Uh, so who is going to do that now as well? But what do other councillors have to say? Well, let's talk to one of them about that. Diana Dilworth joins us now, Port Moody City Councillor. Thank you for being here. Oh, you're welcome, Simi. Good afternoon. When did you first hear that the mayor was deciding to come back to work? I was made aware of his attendance at City Hall after he had arrived at City Hall and retaken his place in his office. Oh, so no heads up or anything like that? Uh, Unfortunately, I did not receive a a heads up at all from the, the mayor. And what did you think about all that? Uh, quite frankly, I, I was taken aback. I was I was quite shocked, actually. I had assumed that he was going to continue working through his legal case before the judicial system and would come back once it was resolved. Because when he took a leave of absence, that's what he promised the community. And, and I have to tell you, the community feels like he has really gone back on his word. Yeah, what was it like at the meeting last night? Did you hear from community members? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you, between the time on Monday when he arrived back at City Hall and at the end of last night's meeting, um, we heard from dozens and dozens of residents. It was certainly the trending topic on Port Moody social media pages and in coffee shops and in grocery stores. And the mood right now, quite frankly, is unprecedented. Um, it's uncomfortable and awkward for, for everyone. The people that I've been talking to and have been sending me emails have said that they're embarrassed, they're they're angry, they're disappointed, they're, they're disgusted. Those are some of the words that I heard our residents using when they talked to me and shared their concerns and their questions about why he did come back when he did. Yeah, you've tabled a notice of motion on this. Uh, what is that motion about? So because of this concern that I heard from our community members, and they were all saying the same thing, they were pleased to step away Get your your legal affairs in order, get them resolved, and then you can certainly come back. And, you know, looking into a bit further, a year ago, the city enacted um, the Port Moody Council Code of Conduct bylaw, and I was reading through it, and there's there's one bullet that really stood out to me. And it said, one must arrange their private affairs and conduct themselves in a manner that promotes public confidence and will bear close public scrutiny. Given what our residents were saying very loudly and clearly, it it made me very, very clear Mm -hmm. that they did not have confidence in the mayor returning to his position and that his behavior did not meet their standards. So I, I, I took what I heard from our residents and I very respectfully asked the mayor last night to listen to what his constituents were saying. And my motion was that until and unless Mayor Vagramov is completely exonerated of all charges, he should be asked to continue his unpaid leave of absence. And if he cannot be completely exonerated, I believe he should resign his position. Okay, and what happened with your motion? So it was just a a notice of motion. And what that means is I'm asking that this be placed on the next uh, regular council agenda, which is going to be October 9th. Um, there wasn't enough time to get this motion on last night's agenda because I've spent the last, you know, 48 hours really gauging public sentiment. And what has the mayor had to say about all this? Has he talked to other councillors about this? I, I don't know what his communications with some of my colleagues may or may not have been. Um, he did come to the meeting last night. I genuinely believed that he was listening intently to what he was hearing uh, with people coming to the microphones and people who were sending in emails. Yeah, Councillor Dilworth, this kind of highlights a big issue for municipalities, doesn't it? Is that really 
is there any mechanism that you have to remove somebody if they're facing a situation like this? You know what? Fortunately, the incidences of elected officials being charged with criminal acts is very, very extraordinary. It's not something you see regularly. But but as we all know, there are instances where it has happened. And unfortunately, there isn't any mechanism at this time. But through UBCM last year, um, all of the attendees were in agreement that there would be a request through to the province, to the Minister of Municipal Affairs, to look at enacting some legislation that gives municipalities a tool that says, okay, if a member of council is charged with something, they must go on an unpaid leave of absence or a leave paid of of absence. And secondary, if an elected official is convicted, this is the action that should take place. Right. And municipalities have been left in this very awkward position of having to deal with it on their own because there really isn't a precedent. Because that's really what this highlights, I think, for people even outside of Port Moody, isn't it? It's that your mayor couldn't be charged with this. Your mayor could even be convicted. I'm I'm talking hypothetically here, of course. But in the end... Unless they decide to step down, there is no mechanism to make that happen. And and that is correct. And there is a precedent in a a mayor of a municipality had been convicted of a a criminal act and remained in office until the next election where uh, the residents did not reelect him. So that's what you're essentially waiting for at this point then is to find out what happens next with the court case? You know what? My understanding is that uh, Robert is in court tomorrow and if his legal charge is resolved and he's exonerated, you know what? I will be pleased to, to pull and withdraw my motion. Right. But does this also highlight perhaps in the future, if this does come up again, we still don't have the tools to deal with this? No, and I know that there has been pressure put on the Minister of Municipal Affairs, and I think we're all optimistic that she's going to follow the request of the UBCM resolution, asking for her and her agency to develop some some appropriate legislation for us to be able to use. Right. In the meantime, then, Councillor Dilworth, like, what do you tell Port Moody residents when they come to you and talk about this? I, I said what I've been saying to residents, certainly Monday, Tuesday, this morning is, I'm hearing you, I'm hearing what you're asking for, and I'm representing those concerns at the table. And I, I certainly listened, and at the end of last night's meeting, I, I, I debated making a statement or not, and I felt, I felt that somebody needed to say it on council. And I, I literally said, this is, this is wrong and absolutely innocent until proven guilty, full stop. But the, the divisiveness and the distraction that this is bringing to our council chambers just can't be tolerated. And as I said, I very respectfully asked the mayor to listen to his constituents and, and remove himself until his legal charges are resolved. All right. Councillor Dilworth, thank you for your time. You're quite welcome. Enjoy the rest of the afternoon. Thank you. That is Diana Dilworth, a Port Moody City Councillor, uh, talking about essentially what Port Moody Council is going through these days. Yes, it is time for our Where We Live series. I love this because we like to tell the little stories of the little gems, little unknown corners of our neighborhoods in Metro Vancouver. Maybe a place that you know about that you think, hey, you know what? I wish more people knew about this fantastic place in my neighborhood. Let us know if you have a place like that. Simi at cknw.com. Today's actually features a location in North Burnaby. Now, the city of Burnaby is home to more than 232,000 residents. It's got a top-rated university. And as you're about to hear, from our CKNW contributor, Claire Allen. It also has an internationally known boxing gym. Do you think you have what it takes to become a contender? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. How about a champion? I want you to go across this ring and knock that son of a bitch down. Can you do it? Can you do it? Let's go. Well, if you want to try, North Burnaby Boxing Club is the place to put your will and your skills to the test. North Burnaby Boxing Club is hidden from the street, but it's located right off the Low Heat Highway within the complex that's home to Rev's Bowling Alley. The only evidence that the club is housed within its walls is a sign on the side of the building. After going down a set of stairs and past the racquetball courts, you'll find the boxing gym. It's there where I met one of the head coaches. 
Rosalia Kalla, three times Golden Gloves champion, Western Canadian champion, five times BC champion, top female athlete, BC, five time bronze medalist at the Canadian Nationals, and I am the coach at North Burnaby Boxing Club. Inside the gym, there is a well-worn boxing ring. The ropes are held together with duct tape, and specks of bleach and blood mark the canvas. Around the gym, hanging from chains, are heavy bags. And on the walls, posters of great fighters from the past. Looming above the ring is a large picture of the most famous image in boxing. Muhammad Ali standing over a fallen Sonny Liston. Perhaps the image is meant to inspire the boxers that enter the gym because these walls have been witness to more than a few champions. Manny Sobral, who's the head coach here, he went to the 1988 Olympics and represented Canada. Olympian, Canadian junior middleweight champion, ladies and gentlemen, Manny, the teacher, Sobral. Right there, like we have like you know, the best champ that we could ever have here. We've had everywhere from Junior Moore. We've had so many people come through here. Maybe probably 10 champs, maybe more. As I looked around the gym, I saw a picture of a young heavyweight champion, Lennox Lewis, training at the North Burnaby Boxing Club. Lennox Lewis is a friend of Manny's, so when he comes into town, he does come and pay visit to our club, which is really nice. While the club trains fighters to represent it locally and nationally, the coaches also offer classes for those who want to learn the sweet science without the risk of injury. We have kids programs. Uh, we run those two days a week. We have adult recreational boxing. So you have conditioning, boxing techniques. Now you could be at any level for any of those. The adult recreational, like the way I coach, is everything that I did to prepare for a fight, I put into a class. Coach Rosalia encourages anyone with an interest in boxing to come and check out what the club has to offer. Come in with an open mind. Like, you know, boxers are actually pretty level-headed people. We don't walk around going, I'm a boxer, you're not. <laughs> we just, uh, we're very warm and inviting here. It, it is intimidating. You know, you walk in and you see everybody and you're like, oh, everybody is doing what they're, you know. It's not a big deal because I once was you walking in. I walked into a boxing club, this very club, where I was like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm doing. They're going to eat me alive. And look where I've come. Make that first step. Go in, introduce yourself, and come in with an open mind. Like many spaces in Metro Vancouver, the North Burnaby Boxing Club is facing the threat of redevelopment. The property where the boxing club is housed had been at the center of a Supreme Court battle, which found that a previous real estate transaction was tainted by illegality. The decision from the Supreme Court means that the land could come up for sale again, leaving North Burnaby Boxing Club with an uncertain future. I asked Coach Rosalia about if the club has any plans for that possibility. We want to keep it strong. Um, we do a lot to give back to the community. We are a non-profit gym. So whatever we make here is for us fighters or to keep this gym going and the legacy going of North Burnaby Boxing Club. So we do have some plans in place. If, if this were to come down tomorrow, maybe not as quick. But we, for the next few years, we should be okay here. But you never know uh, what the future will hold. But we will keep this gym. To learn more about the North Burnaby Boxing Club, visit bcboxers.com. For the Where We Live series on AM980 CKNW, I'm Claire Allen. It's our Claire Allen with a feature on the North Burnaby Boxing Club. There's lots more to come as part of our Where We Live series. Oh, sure, politicians are going to be crazy busy, wannabe politicians and those who've already been elected before uh, up for the next five weeks or so. But you know who else is going to be very busy? 
pollsters. They've got a lot of work ahead of them, lots of questions to ask, lots of people to try to get a hold of. And they also have the very intense added pressure of the analysis of their accuracy as well. So what's it like being a pollster right now? And what are these key issues do they think are going to be in this federal election campaign? Well, Daryl Berker joins us now, the CEO of Ipsos, to talk more about that. Daryl, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me on. Is this the crazy busy time for you? Uh, yes. <laughs> Let's put it that way. You feel a little bit like Sisyphus, right? You just keep pushing that rock. Keep doing it for the do. next five and a half weeks, right? Yes. How do you? How does your company prepare for an election? What do you have to do? Well, we work with uh, Global, as you know, uh, on this. And uh, so we start started probably a year ago talking uh, to our, our, our colleagues at Global about uh, how they would like to cover the uh, the campaign. So basically what we do is we uh, try to align ourselves with the coverage that they're going to be uh, uh, putting out there and making sure that we're focused on getting them information about the key priority issues they're going to be looking at. But along with that, what we also like to bring uh, to the table is some of the the newest innovations that we see in research. And I think people can stay tuned to see a, a few new things this time around in our polling. Right. Now, is that has technology gotten better? Or have you gotten better at kind of nailing all that down? Because there's a lot of scrutiny, right, about the analysis of polls and, and how you get your numbers. Yeah, there certainly is. And, and, you know, the old days when you used to be able to dial up a uh, you know, random sample of Canadians and you get 80% of them agreeing to cooperate and they all had landlines and you had to, you know, to get that wrong was like falling out of a boat and missing water. I mean, it was really quite easy to do. It's very, very difficult to do now. So it's nerve wracking. Yeah, I would imagine. So how do you do it then? How do you get people to answer your questions? Well, what we do is a combination of uh, different um, different types of, uh, of, of interviewing. So we'll we do some online, different types of online interviewing, but we also do telephones. So we'll be calling people on their cell phones, we'll be calling them on their landlines, and trying to cover off all of the groups of the population, the relevant population that will be uh, will be participating in the election. That's really the challenge. So by using different methodologies, we think we come a little closer to something that looks like the looks like the voting population. Okay. And so do you, will you be doing this province by province? Do you do it riding by riding? Like, how do you do your breakdowns of popularity? Well, we do it proportion to population. So uh, usually in a, uh, and, and our first survey, it'll be bigger than normal. And our last survey will be bigger than normal. So there'll be you know, between two and 3000 people in the, in those two big surveys, but in between, and we'll be tracking at about a thousand. And, you know, uh, the job is not to, uh, to interview everybody in candidates to re- interview a representative sample. So with a thousand, you can usually get a pretty good read of what, what the trends are in the campaign. So when you're looking at the campaign as it stands right now, how does it look to you? What are you seeing? It's like a big cloud of gas. What? <laughs> Besides <laughs> it's the hot air, like, I get what you're saying about the hot air, but no, what? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, we don't, wouldn't even characterize it as that. Uh, normally, at this stage of of a campaign, you have a really good sense of what the big issues are that people are going to be fighting over, uh, what the profiles of the leaders are, who has momentum, who has a lead, that kind of thing. You've got a sense of the dynamics of the campaign. And uh, this time around, it is literally like a cloud of gas. There's, it's, it's the only reason we seem to be having an election is because it's on the calendar. It's not like anybody has a big advantage over anybody else. It's not like Canadians are looking at uh, any of the political leaders and are overwhelmingly inspired by one of the choices. It really is a kind of this amorphous, gaseous cloud right now right. that has yet to that has yet to define itself. So the potential for some real surprises in this election campaign are, are, are quite real. When you were asking about you know uh, what, what uh, makes us anxious as pollsters, it's well, it's a campaign like this. Really? Because it, it, you're saying it's unpredictable then? We could, one of two things will happen. It'll either st- stay you know, stuck in, the, in, in, uh, in molasses like it is right now, or something's going to break out, something's going to happen. But normally we have some sense of what that something is. This time we really don't. Is, is there a comparison? Like when you think back to 2015 or any previous election, does it seem similar to you to anything else before? Well, in 2015, we had a pretty good sense that the public wanted Stephen Harper out. Uh, we had a pretty good sense that really what the competition was about was who was going to replace him. That was pretty fairly early on, even going into the campaign, we had a sense of that. We knew that the fight was ultimately going to be about the economy. So we, if we would have had this phone call just before that election, 
that would, would be what we would be talking about because we, we knew all of that. This time around, uh, the public opinion data seems to be detached from how people are, are considering uh, voting right now. So, for example, if you look at the Liberal Party, their deserve to re-elect numbers are 33, which are horrible. Stephen Harper's were, you know, above 40 in the last uh, in the last election campaign, and he lost. So they're at 33. Their uh, their approval level right now for the for the Trudeau government is 36. Stephen Harper was in the low 40s at this time going into the last election campaign. Donald Trump is at 42. So the liberal numbers are really not very good at all, but they're right in it. That, that's right the, in the campaign. Yeah, when you describe it like that, you think, how are they even in it then? Yeah, they should be in a lot worse trouble than they are. And the reason probably is because people have not really seized the uh, the idea that there's a choice to be made yet. So they haven't really sort of gotten into the dynamics of the campaign. You know, everybody's just going through the summer and they're, they're coming out. There's a lot of confusion as to, as to who these people are. There's new players on the scene. Um, and when they look at the alternatives to the government, they're not particularly enamored with them either. So it's it's really a very strange type of a campaign, and there's another party that's running in this campaign that uh, uh, you know we ne- we don't normally talk about, but we really need to talk about this time. It's it's what I call the apathy party, and that's uh, people just not showing up because they're not inspired by what's going on in the campaign. So Justin Trudeau in the last campaign uh, uh, spiked turnout to up to 68%, which had been was the highest turnout in quite some time in Canadian elections. When Stephen Harper won his majority in 2011, it was only 60. So a lot more people showed up, and more of them actually voted for the, for the Liberal Party as a result of that. So people, these people have a weak attachment to the political system. We're really inspired by Justin Trudeau. What are they going to do this time if they're less inspired? So, you know, even the question of turnout really is something that we can't quite define right now. Okay, this is going to be a very, you've convinced me, this is going to be a very interesting five weeks then. Are there any issues that you're thinking, okay, we are definitely going to be talking about this? Yes, I think we're definitely going to be talking about affordability and taxes. And the reason for that is because both the Liberals and Conservatives want to fight over that. The Liberals feel that they've got a really good record in terms of reducing middle-class tax burden and the child tax credit that they brought in. You heard the Prime Minister when he made his announcement today that these are some things that he's really going to point to and that they will potentially be in jeopardy as a result of uh, of uh, uh, bringing in uh, Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives as the government. Where Scheer, on the other hand, is basically arguing that you may think that you've got tax relief, but you really haven't. And the Liberals have you know, jacked up uh, the deficit. They've put a lot more money into uh, into spending. You're not benefiting from it and you're actually paying more taxes. So it's an issue they want to fight on. If we get into substance, which we don't seem to be at the moment, (laughs) but if we get into substance, it will probably be a conversation about that. The other progressive parties, so the Green Party and the uh, the NDP, really want to fight on the issue of climate change because they really do feel they've got uh, Justin Trudeau in the crosshairs on that. And the reason they feel that way is because the contradiction of buying a pipeline and also having a, a program for climate change that's not going to, um, I guess, objectively meet the uh, conditions of the Paris Accord is something that really uh, would stick in the craw of somebody who is a, a strong environmentalist. So they're going to be attacking them from the progressive side. So it's, I think those two issues have a way of, uh, will have a way through the campaign of emerging as being important. Well, Daryl, I look forward to hearing more from you over the next five weeks. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Daryl Berker from Ipsos, uh, the polling firm.